Luke chapter 18. If you have a copy of the Word of God, turn to Luke 18. made mention of our sister Adele Dunn having to go to Ulster for a little time. Her, her mom had a fall and uh, she needs to go back there and try and help make arrangements there and uh, just keep her before the Lord. Uh, our sister Rachel Fiorucci also uh, with grandparents, some issues there with health. They're down in Florida for a few days trying to help uh, the family as well. So keep those folks in your prayers as you remember them and the many other burdens that are carried by many of the Lord's people. Well, we come to Luke chapter 18 as we make our way through this gospel. I'm not sure if it begins to feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel, maybe not quite yet, but uh, we're making our way through. And we come to this well-known portion of the Lord's Word, and certainly was enlightening to me as I was giving consideration to it in recent days. So Luke chapter 18, let's read from Verse 1, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man. Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, whose cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Amen. May the Lord bless this public reading of his precious word. May you receive it as the very word of God. Believe it and take to heart all of its instruction to you. Let's bow together in prayer and seek the Lord. Lord, we come again before thy presence, and we do so with thanksgiving thanking Thee for this news of our brother Fitton. And we pray in these moments, asking, Lord, that Thou wilt make the way straight and plain for them. We think of how we've been praying for these vacant pulpits. And sometimes we have wondered where, where the men are going to come from. And yet we're, we're seeing mercy drops. And for that we are exceedingly thankful. Lord, continue with the mercy drops, and we also pray for showers. O oh God, look upon thy church, look upon thy kingdom, see what was true in the time of our Lord Jesus when he stated that the laborers are few. The laborers are still few. And we plead, O oh God, for a raising up of laborers. Remember our own seminary, remember our college, 
in Northern Ireland. We pray again for the benediction of heaven upon these, that they may be places of learning, and where many men will come under the Word to be taught and instructed and prepared for future service. God, at times we don't know where they're going to come from, but we know, we know, Lord, just like Elijah, and the meat comes in strange ways, ways that could never have been planned. The Lord is able to provide, provide in this day as well for thy churches. Come to us tonight, bless the Word. Give us a ready mind to receive it, hearts to respond willingly to it, and feed our souls upon Christ, and help us to hear His voice through the Word. So come and advance thy cause and kingdom now. In this time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the past week, we have in this nation, and indeed not too far from here, witnessed the conviction and sentencing of a prominent lawyer. And we have had the reminder that those in high office are not everything that they are meant to be. This is not unusual, the fact that men aren't everything that they're meant to be. And when we put men into place and into position, uh, in fact, in any context, even when men become fathers, never mind when they become teachers or they become judges or they become pastors, very often they fall short of what they're called to be, but often in ways that are far exceedingly corrupt and sinful than they ever should be allowed to be. Judges are called, of course, to administer justice according to the law. But like a wicked pastor who will not even attempt to model his life after his model, even in Christ, so judges who are like the one referred to by Christ in this portion, they don't even consider the ultimate example. God is judge. And they don't model their lives after God and seek to carry out their duties and responsibilities in a spirit that they can find in their God. Again, this is not unusual. This land, and I could refer to any land, but I might as well keep it close to home, has had its own experiences and history blotted by the utter failure of people in office. And thinking of it just in terms of the Supreme Court, you can think back to 1857, Dred Scott and Sanford, and the U.S. Supreme Court stating that enslaved people and those descending from slaves do not have the right to citizenship. That's a blot on the history of this land removing from people a sense of humanity that they ought to be, have a right to. The same happened in 1973, only a different subsection of the community. Instead of it being those who are descended from slaves, it's those who are pre-born. Again, considered having no rights to citizenship and the rights of citizenship in this land. This, this goes on in the highest courts of the nation. This kind of thing happens over and over and over again. Unjust men, unjust judges take office, stand in places of power, and they do not rule in a way that pleases or honors God. And even with the reversal of Roe v. Wade, we were all hopeful, though me, like many of you, were hesitant, wondering what will the states do, what will happen, and including our own state, it's stumbling. It is utterly failing to carry out its responsibility. Men clearly who claim to be God-fearing do not fear God. They're like this man right here. They don't fear God, and neither do they regard man. The only thing they regard is their own political position and what is right for them. They, they don't think about the obligation that they have before the living God. This is not unusual. 
the parable that is told by our Lord here. The man that is referred to, this judge that is referred to in the parable here, again, as he has no sense of having any obligation to anyone but himself, he acknowledges that. In verse 4, though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her. It's about himself. It's for his own ease. It's for some personal benefit. And yet his position is one to serve the community. He's not there to serve himself. He's a judge to serve the community. And yet he has no sense of that obligation whatsoever. Again, not uncommon. So, the passage that we have before us teaches us some very important lessons. And as I came to it, I was looking at it in the way that often it is taken, in the way I've heard it preached, that the main point is to see the, the place of persistent prayer in the life of the believer. And you can see why. Verse 1 kind of sets the stage that he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying. And so you read that, and immediately then you're, you're taken up with, well, here's the point of the parable. And that, that's true to some degree. But as I read over it and kept it in context with what we've already considered from the previous chapter, which is flowing out of this, or that's coming, extending out of that, it's not disconnected from the previous chapter, which we'll see in just a moment. You see that really, really what we need to keep in mind is what Christ says in verse 8. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith in the earth? There's a connection between men ought always to pray and whether Christ, when he returns, will find the faith on the earth. So, I want to look at these verses with you with the Lord's help under what I've titled simply, The Faith Christ Looks For. The Faith Christ Looks For. And note with me, first of all, it will prove true by its ongoing presence. It will prove true by its ongoing presence. Now, what am I talking about prove true? Well, the true faith. True faith. God looks for true faith. Living faith. There are all sorts of expressions of faith. You know that. Go to any religion and you'll see some expression of faith. Faith in the principles of the religion. Faith in the gods of the religion. Whatever. Faith. And sometimes even those in Christian circles will talk about that person has great faith. Or I'm holding on to my faith. Or my faith got me through. Or things like that nature. And you, you, sort, you wonder what your faith got you through. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? God gets us through. You know, not our faith. It's not found in ourself. That's Arminianism. It's Arminianism. I've told, shared this story before when a lady came to me after about six months of hearing the preaching and after 27 years being a believer, it kind of dawned on her for the first time. She said, all this time it's been about faith in my faith. But I realize now it's about faith in Christ. It's the, the object of our faith is the key. And it was just kind of beginning to sink in after a few, minutes, a few months of hopefully biblical sound ministry to her soul. These are the kind of things you don't even know are going on in people's minds, that this is where they are when they come into the church, that they have faith in their faith. So we hear language like that. 
So what, what is the faith that he is looking for when he returns? Well, it's true faith. We'll get to that in due course, but we understand this is real, evangelical, spirit-birthed faith. And that faith produces something, and we'll see what it produces as we progress as well. But it will prove true by its ongoing presence. Verse 1, He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, the text implies certain things. Firstly, the temptation to grow weary. The temptation to grow weary is implied by what the Lord Jesus says, speaking this parable to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. There is the temptation to faint. It's a real thing. It is a real experience that those who profess faith, those that are externally part of the visible body, grow weary, grow faint, and Christ is curbing that by His language. Now, why? Why is there this temptation to grow weary? Why? Well, keep it in context. And we might say, first of all, it's caused by rejection and suffering like Christ. The previous chapter, Luke 17, verse 25, "...but first must Christ suffer many things and be rejected of this generation." As our Lord deals with the, the return, His return, and the various details, and I'm not going to rehash what we've looked at in the passage from verse 20 through to the end of chapter 17, but what is He to experience? He is to suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. Now, He becomes an example to His people regarding that. His disciples are watching on. Go and read the language of, of John, especially John 16, where he speaks about persecution. He refers to the language of what his disciples can expect and the fact that this world will reject them. They will see this in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way they never imagined. And so they are to, they, they, as, they, as they experience that themselves, part of the challenge will be, will they grow weary? Will they faint as they experience similar suffering? Now, go through, go through the New Testament, and you will find people who were affected. John Mark was affected. He headed out with Paul and Barnabas, was ready to go, but partway through the journey, he heads back. He's not able to stand. He grew weary. He grew faint, and he headed home. And of course, you remember from Acts 14 how that caused the great strife between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to give him another opportunity and take him. Let, let him come with us again. He wants to go again. He wants to try again. And Paul is, no. And the contention is so strong between them, these two mighty men of God's part ways. But it was, it was at least initiated by the fact that John Mark had a history of growing faint. You have others that don't end up so well. People like Demas. And Demas is spoken of. He is referred to in epistles as, as one who is right there laboring with Paul, standing for the faith, preaching the Word. And then you come to Paul's last epistle, 2 Timothy, and he has to remark that Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And it's in the context that Paul is ready to be offered. He is ready to suffer and pay the ultimate price. And Demas, seeing the path that Paul was walking, grew faint. 
grew weary. Oh, he had not watched, watched the Lord Jesus, Demas, but he's watching now the Apostle Paul and seeing Paul and the way Paul is headed, he's going to pay the ultimate price. And Demas isn't prepared to do it. He's too attached to this world. So the temptation to grow weary is real when we think of rejection and suffering. Rejection and suffering. You're going to have it. Sometimes I wonder what... <laughs> you think of what some other believers are going through in the world. and I, Do you ever ask yourself the question... If, if you just transplant this body over there, wherever it might be, you just, just take everyone here and just, just, just transplant us there. And then think, who would still be here? Especially as you begin to hear, word begins to spread, brother so-and-so was just arrested. And here's what they're doing to him. Here's what's happening. I mean, who would still be here? Would you still be here? In His mercy, in His providence, we are not going through that at this present hour. But it would be foolish to deny that some people would like to bring that kind of thing upon the church in America. The sympathy of even the unbelieving that has existed for centuries now in this land has, has, is very much disappearing. So, this causes us to grow weary, seeing suffering, rejection. Also, it's caused by delayed judgment. If you go back again, verses 17 through 29, just refreshing your memory here. This is all in context. Chapter 18 does not disconnect from what the Lord has already dealt with. He's dealing with His second coming. And so, verse 27 of the previous chapter, the speaking of the days of Noah, they did eat, they drank, they married wives, given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Judgment. Especially in the time of Noah, but I could argue also in the time of Sodom as well. God delayed His judgment. He was very patient. And you have warnings and indications that should have awakened people, but they were not moved by it. They didn't respond to it. They didn't hear what was being declared to them. And so the delay of that judgment, and this is what happens sometimes for the Lord's people, they grow weary in the delayed judgment. We, we struggle. We struggle to see God withhold His judgment as evil men continue on in a trajectory of rebellion against God and causing hurt and harm to the people of God. And so you see people like Noah, Keeping on, pressing on, continuing faithfully. It would be very easy to get weary. What's the point? Everyone's mocking me. They're laughing at me. I think that's something that believers struggle with. Maybe you've struggled with it. Why do you allow this to happen, Lord? 
You're praying, if not verbally, you, you have it in your heart, a sense of the injustice of what's going on, and there's a cry within your soul, Lord, how long? Just like you have with the souls under the altar in Revelation 6. How long? But you grow weary, faint. The temptation is also caused to, to grow weary and faint is caused by attachment to this world. Verses 31 through 33, In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in, his in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. They're attached. The temptation is to be attached to the stuff. Material things. Remember Lot's wife. She was just like that. She turned back. She was attached to Sodom. She was attached to the city and her life there. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Giving up the things of this life. Being detached from it. Attachment to this world it causes us to become weary. Weary and well-doing. We just, just want to give up the eternal, like let go of the significance of the eternal, the spiritual, the honor of God. And so we grow weary and well-doing. So these are some, and just taking it from the context, other arguments could be given. And you go back to chapter 18, verse 1. He's speaking a parable unto them to this end. Who's unto them, by the way? It's to his disciples. That's who he's addressing. That men ought always to pray and not to faint. This is the thing. They have this temptation to faint. He's been warning them. He's been dealing with the, the fact that the end is coming and this is what it will look like and all the rest of it. And there's a temptation to grow weary, to grow faint. So the temptation to grow weary, but also the tendency to quit praying. The tendency to quit praying. That man ought always to pray and not to faint. Specifically what he is looking for is ongoing prayer. Now, here's the thing. Christ is not primarily addressing the lack of prayer, right? Now, he is in one sense, but follow me. Follow what I'm trying to communicate here. What, what's the question he asks in verse 8? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith, or the faith, or this kind of faith, on the earth? Does prayer produce faith, or is prayer a product of faith? Well, you would say, well, prayer is a product of real faith. It it's, comes out of real, genuine prayer, believing prayer, is born out of, comes out of, is led out of. The fountainhead of it is a real faith. And so well, in verse 1 he's addressing prayer, and that's, that's true. The, the question he comes to in verse 8 is, will there be real faith that produces prayer when I return? The lack of prayer is merely a symptom of, of a lack of faith. Of course, that's why prayer has often been referred to as a, a barometer, if you like. Sometimes, you know, men have referred to it as a barometer of, of a church itself. Where is a church really at? Is there a prayer meeting? What goes on at the prayer meeting? What's it like? What does it feel like? What are they praying for? That will give you some indication of the kind of 
spirituality of that body. That's true individually as well, and you know it. I don't have to convince you that this is the case. You know it, that there's a barometer that is seen in your prayer life, that where you are with God, how you're depending on God, the way you're looking to God and resting on God and enjoying God or trusting God, depending on God, all of that, you can see the reality of it or the depth of it or the intensity of it through your prayer life. Now, prayer is difficult. Oh, it's, it's hard. I mean, you, you can pray, right? You can say words. But, but spiritual communion, like, like being burdened and concerned and praying over those burdens and through those burdens is hard work. Some of you barely, if ever, miss a Wednesday night. I mean, I, I know that something's gone on or you're out of town if you're not here. Because you, you, say, you, you follow a principle. Wednesday night's not an option. You're not sitting at some point on Wednesday asking yourself whether or not you'll go to the prayer meeting. You've run by a policy. The prayer meeting's on, you'll be there. That's the way you, you run your affairs, and I commend you for it. More need to take note. But you know, you also know what it's like when you come. And sometimes, whether you feel it in yourself or you feel it in the body in general, the presence or absence of real communion that's going on in the body, a real sense of liveliness and vigor in prayer. I use those words carefully, that, that there's a sense of like, we're laying hold on God here, that the matter that we're praying for, the concerns of this body, the, the fears and the, the, the challenges and the desires of our soul, these are felt in our being. Sometimes I come, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm not there. But one of you dear saints, you, you, we come to pray, and one of you are in a better place than I am, and you pull me in there and say, oh, yes, Lord, quicken me, quicken me, and you start entering into their prayers with a sense of vibrancy. Now, don't, don't, minimize, don't minimize your participation in the prayer meeting. Sometimes you are ministering to the preacher and no doubt many others. There's a tendency to quit praying. And the danger, as we shall see, is that it tells something else. It communicates something else. It brings Christ to ask the question that when He comes, shall He find faith on the earth? Spurgeon, writing about prayer, says, How much of blessing we may have missed through remissness and supplication we can scarcely guess. None of us can know how poor we are in comparison with what we might have been if we had lived habitually near to God in prayer. What we might have been. Now, if I stop there, we can all just feel really sorry for ourselves. But Spurgeon goes on to say, vain regrets and surmises are useless. But an earnest determination to amend will be far more useful. We not only ought to pray more, but we must. End quote. 
So, this is what Christ is saying. Man ought always to pray. And our faith will prove true by its ongoing presence that it is expressed through prayer, real believing prayer. To put it this way, if I am professing that I am a real believer, vibrantly living for the Lord, and I have no sense of deep fellowship and communion with God, or even, let's say, you say, preacher, I'm not, I'm not in a place of deep fellowship with God. Okay, I know what that's like. But then let me ask you, do you desire it? I mean, is there any desire for it at all? Because if there's not, your Lord who went to the cross said, Men ought always to pray. They ought to pray. Looking for motivation? See him there dying, and as he dies, in prayer. Always pray. And so that's what was happening. He goes to be baptized. We know that he is, as he prayed, he went in. Choosing the disciples, what does he do? He goes up into a mountain to pray all night unto God before he even enters into that challenging decision. All the time we find him. It doesn't tell us in every verse that he's praying, but the sense is, you pull it all together, always, always Jesus was praying and bearing the burden of prayer constantly. And so we say, Lord, I'd want to be like you. <laughs> if we even in the tiniest way succeeded that in one area of our lives, just in prayer. Never mind everything else. Of course, I say all that, and the question is, am I even prepared then to, to do anything about it? Like, this is what I mean. And I... I I have an aversion to guilt preaching, right? I do. The last thing I want ever to be said is there's a guy who gets up and he just throws guilt on us and heaps it on us every week. So I don't, I don't. I trust that God is doing a work in your heart, that when the word is read and when it's preached, that you're actually awake and you're hearing your master's voice and you're saying, yes, Lord, I want that. And I'm explaining, and yes, I apply, but I hope in a way that isn't always just filling you with a sense of guilt. But there has to be, there has to be a sense of times just evaluating what on earth is wrong with my profession of faith if I have no interest in the very exercise of prayer. I just don't care about it. If you don't care about it, there's a problem. Man ought always to pray and not to faint. So as we look at this faith then, the faith that Christ looks for, it will prove true by its ongoing presence, by always praying, right? You see someone constantly praying and seeking the Lord. There is an evidence 
of that faith that he is looking for. Secondly, it will prove true through times of testing. It will prove true through times of testing. Now, let's read again verse 2 and following as he explains the parable or shares the parable. There was in a city as a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now the parable is arguing from the lesser to the greater. We're meant to see that, okay, here are certain details here. How much more ought certain things to be true as we consider not a widow and a judge, but the Lord's people and their God? The widow had no advocate. She's coming herself. No one to stand and argue your case. Is that true of you? No. You have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. You're not like her. The widow was not pitied at all. Even when he finally responds, it's not a pity for her. Again, it's for himself. That's not you. For as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. The judge was not just. God is. Always. The judge did not care for the weak. God does. And over and over again in the Scriptures, He is condescending to the weak, and them of low degree. The whole point of this is that God's people go through trials. They go through trials of life, and they have two options. Either they turn to God, or turn on God, or they turn to God. Because the focus here really is on vindication. It's on vindication. Because verse 7 makes that clear. Verse 6 and 7, the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. It's, it's not even on the widow. The widow is a character who's playing a part, and it's important. But when the Lord says focus on a particular character here, it's not the widow. Now that's sometimes how it's preached, because the whole purpose is to argue primarily from this parable persistent prayer. So, beloved, look at the widow. Look how she kept on coming. Look how she kept on prevailing. She went on and on and on and on and on and on. You do the same. Go and do likewise. But when our Lord turns the focus and the spotlight on a character, it's not on her. It's on the judge. And what his people are to understand, again, step back. What has he been dealing with? His return. And sandwiched between Luke 17, verse 20, and Luke 18, verse 8, is really a narrative of the advents of Christ. He has come, and He is coming again. And how will His people deal with that? When He tarries when he doesn't arrive on the scene to their aid, when it appears that his return is delayed, when fears begin to grip their heart, when wrongs don't seem to be righted, 
Yes, we're like the widow. Because it's like we're going through this life with injustice. Constant experiences of injustice. A sense of needing to be vindicated. Because this world is not going to be a friend to grace to help us on to God. Waiting for the return of Christ is not a bed of roses. It's not us being carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. It's going to be hard. Sometimes really hard. And the widow, she keeps coming to the judge looking to be vindicated. And the Lord's people are going to go through times where they are going to come to their God looking for wrongs to be righted, for God to vindicate. Lord, behold their threatenings. Is that not the language of Acts 4? When they've been threatened not to preach anymore in this name, they come together and they pray, Lord, behold their threatenings. Look at it, Lord. They're looking for justice. They're looking for the Lord to avenge them. And it isn't always going to come. In the way you might have hoped. You read in Revelation 13, 7, it was given on to him to make war with the saints, our great adversary, and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So, so the church goes through these times as we wait for our Lord's return. These times of feeling the wrongs that go on in our experience. And as I say, this whole waiting period becomes a test where we either turn from God or to God. What has been your practice through times of difficulty? Have you turned from God? Have you asked, why, Lord? Have you suggested unfairness in God? Lack of wisdom? Have you been brought to a point where you challenge His goodness? You see, we come to that point, we're on the brink. We're on the brink of fainting. We're no longer praying. We're fainting. We're letting go. We're not trusting. So when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith that keeps coming to God, believing that he will avenge? brings us thirdly then to consider it will prove true until his people are finally avenged. The faith, that Christ look, the faith that Christ looks for will prove true until his people are finally avenged. Verse 6, And the Lord saith, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. 
I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Like I said, let me underline it again. This parable is not first and foremost about persistence in prayer merely. There are other passages that deal with persistence in prayer and teaches the importance of persistence in prayer and encourage you to keep on praying. And certainly it is implied, but it's not the primary message. If it was, then again, he would have drawn attention to the widow. But he doesn't. He draws it to the judge. Why? Because we are going to experience times where we are crying day and night unto him. What does that imply? When the church has to cry day and night and day and night, which is what is the sense of it, when the church has to keep on crying on to God day and night, day and night, what's being implied? Delay. And so you start asking questions, questions I never asked looking at this passage. What's the difference between the unjust judge in terms of the delay aspect? He delayed. God seems to delay so that his people have to cry day and night and day and night and day and night and they keep on crying. Both parties come to this experience where it feels like they're being ignored. And that's what the church goes through. She goes through experiences where it feels like her God is ignoring her. And so you just put in that burden of your heart, whatever it is. Maybe it's something current. Maybe it's something of the past. Well, you have prayed, and you have really prayed. And you keep on praying. And you start getting to that point where it feels like God doesn't hear. What is Christ looking for? When he comes, will he find faith? Let me reframe it slightly. Will he find the kind of faith that keeps going on even when it seems like there's delay after delay after delay? Even when you're brought to a point where you begin to wonder, is he good? You tell yourself, yes, he is. He is just. And you know, like Abraham, that the judge of all the earth will do right. You know that. So when the Son of Man comes, will he find in you, will he find in your heart this ongoing this faith that perseveres is expressed by ongoing prayer. The fruit, the fruit of it is that you keep praying. You keep on calling upon God, but the real key is that there's a faith there. Where even in the face of the injustices, even in the face of the apparent delays of God to right the wrongs, you're saying, God is good. He is good. I don't have to question it. 
Because it isn't just about here and now. You see, here's the thing. What God's people realize is, if God was to right every wrong here in this life, there would be no need of a final judgment. At least in part, the final judgment is the final righting of all wrongs. And you have a faith. You have a faith that believes that that time, that period, eternity in the future is just as real as what you're living right now. And so whether you see it right now, here in this life, or you see it finally, at the end, you know, you know that he has come speedily. He has come at the right time. He has dealt with it in the right moment. That's what this kind of faith is able to do. Isn't this a far cry from the health, wealth, and prosperity, which is great faith is God immediately responding in every instance when I ask, how I ask, in the precise manner that I requested it. No, that's weak faith. Ask yourself, I mean, what kind of love does it take, or even some form of superficial love does it take from a child that gets every single thing the parent it asks of its parent, doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter how extensive it is, just come and say, Dad, Mom, can I have this? Sure, just give it immediately. Just give it like that. Does, does, that, does, that, does that garner real loyalty and hardship? Does that prove there is a real loyalty? Or is it likely that this first, the first sign that the parent says, No, that child has been so tailored and taught that it will utterly reject the affection of the parents because in that moment it didn't get what it wanted. That's not faith. That's not the faith that the Lord is producing in His people. The faith He is looking for when He comes is this. Even when I don't see it, and I don't experience it, in every single facet and way that I might look for and long for and desire, yet I know, I know that He is just. I know He is doing all things well. So that when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. So that I can say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So the faith that Christ is looking for when he comes is that which is confident in the character of their God. Always. Will there be persistent prayer? Yes, because persistent prayer will be an expression of that. I keep on praying because I trust Him. And I believe that He hears. And He will do what's right. But that's a fruit. That's not the root thing. This parable is not dealing with the root issue of prayer. The parable is dealing with the root issue of real faith. Because when the Son of Man comes, He is going to see through every facade. And He is not going to call His saints to the air 
based upon the presence of their name on a membership role of a church. He knows his own. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And what does he see in them? He sees this faith that trusts him. Christ is our example in this, is he not? Did he ever stop trusting what the Father asked him to do? Did he get did he get relief from hardship? Were all his enemies swiftly dealt with in a moment as they were mistreating him? When he's arrested, does God come down and swiftly cut them down? When he's being battered in the court before the high priest, does God come and with one strike of his almighty arm just wipe them all out? Does he look upon Pilate and deal with him before he even has the ability to utter the condemnation of his son? Does he see all the jeers round the cross? And bring an end to their life. And yet Christ... Not for a nanosecond questioned the goodness, the justice of God. So you burdened Christian Desperately looking for relief. Keep coming. The relief will come. You will, you will live to see it. You will see a just judge acting, avenging his own elect. They're his people. They belong to him. They're pitied. They're loved. And he hears their cry day and night. He will avenge them speedily. But according to what time frame? Yours or God's? This is where we see the martyrs, the souls of them under the altar in Revelation 6, who are crying out, as I mentioned already, how long, O Lord? But it will come. It will come. And you will see it. 
whether it's in this life or the next, you will see the swift, perfect justice of God acting in love to you and in fulfillment of His own glory. Exacting judgment on all His and our enemies. And because you believe that just as much as you believe the Son of God shed His blood for the forgiveness of your sins, you don't question. You keep trusting. And you keep praying. And it is right for you to keep praying and crying day and night for God to act in justice. For those of you not saved, where does that leave you? For those of you who are utterly prayerless because you, have no, you don't have this faith. The only reason you're here is by some form of obligation. If there was real persecution going on in America, if it was going to cost you something to be a follower of Christ, you wouldn't be here. Judgment's going to come swiftly. It will come swiftly upon you. Seek the Lord. Man ought always to pray. That includes you. How can I pray like Jesus expects? How can I pray as God demands? You need to have the right faith. The Spirit of God giving faith in your heart, a faith that rests on Christ, trusts in Christ, depends on Christ, and is willing to sacrifice anything, everything, reputation, wealth, give up your health, your ambitions, sacrifice family connections who will not respect you for your loyalty to Christ. You're willing to give it all up and live a loyal follower of Christ to the end of your days. If you're prepared to do that, He promises He'll take you in, wash away all your sins, be your God, carry you through all seasons of life, and finally bring you to glory to be with Himself in an experience that none of us can begin to comprehend, where any expression of peace fails, utterly fails, to live up to the reality of the peace of those that are in Christ and living in glory. He will give you that and bless you with the joy that only His people understand. May the Lord give you the grace to seek Him tonight. Let's bow together in prayer. I don't know when Christ will return. I just know that in such a time as you think not, He's going to come. And there's a warning in those words, a warning that expresses very plainly you need to seek the Lord now because you do not know when He's going to come.
So have you sought the Lord for salvation? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Can you say confidently, I am a child of God? If not, know this. If you walk out of here the same way you walked in, you're not neutral. You're rejecting Christ. You're saying no. No to God's Son. No to eternal life. So may the Lord give you a change of heart, lead you to Himself. And if I can help you in any way, please let me know. Lord, bless Thy Word. Give us this kind of faith that endures. Grant that it is expressed in daily, confident prayer. Thy church suffers many ills. I think of the persecuted church this very hour. I think of what saints are suffering in parts of Northeast Africa and Iran and China, other places. I beg of Thee, O God, to be merciful to Thy church. Relieve Thy people of unjust oppression. Cause wings to be given to the gospel that carry it to the highest courts of every nation and transform the lands of this earth. Hear our prayers. Give grace to us as we live in changing times in this nation where the thought that we are led by good and godly men disappears because of evidence every day that passes. Have mercy, O God. Have mercy. Bless our time together tonight and go with us to our homes and give strength and the empowerment of Thy Spirit this week to Thy people. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.